I know something about you. I don't have to know you very well to know this. I know that you want purpose in your life. You want your life to matter, at least to somebody. Uh, this is not a religious thing. You don't have to be a Christian to know this. Uh, everyone wants their life to make a difference. Student, single, married, parent, empty nester, you want a reason to get out of bed in the morning. You've already discovered that in order to accomplish something, you have to work hard. Nothing worthwhile comes easy. Uh, you have to study, research, write papers, work out, practice. One of the purposes of your life, probably the most important one, is to come to know God through Jesus Christ and then pass His message of love and resurrection on to other people. This is what I mean when I say you're to be on mission with Jesus. The thing I want to share with you today is it takes work to be on mission with Jesus. Uh, this is the fourth in a series of messages from the book of 2 Timothy. The Apostle Paul sits in a prison in Rome, and he writes to Timothy, his disciple, that he is appointed to be the lead pastor of the church in Ephesus, the largest church in the world. Uh, knowing that his life is coming to an end, he's more, li more than likely to be fed to the lions or beheaded by Emperor Nero. He wants to tell Timothy as many things as he can, advice on how he can effectively be on mission with Jesus. So far, he's told Timothy that he must guard the gospel, the truth of God's Word. He has told him he must be strategic in passing on the gospel to the next generation. And he's told him that he should expect to suffer, to face difficulties in ministering for Christ. He must not kid himself into thinking that the work will be easy. Timothy lives in an anti-Christian culture in Ephesus. People from many different worldviews intersect in the large city of Ephesus. Most of them are polytheists. They believe in Roman gods. They worship Greek gods. Uh, some of them are from the east and worship Hindu gods. Some are atheists. Only a few are monotheists, the Jews. And they too oppose Paul because he introduces Jesus Christ, a second member of the Trinity. Uh, they question if Paul is a monotheist. Paul is a monotheist. But he introduces the truth that there is one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, the Jews already believe in God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, but they have a hard time wrapping their arms around the thought of God the Son. Like Timothy, we live in a world where people embrace many different beliefs. We have atheists, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Jews, and people who believe it doesn't matter what you believe. How can we find the strength to minister in a world where so many people are opposed to the message of Christ? It takes work to be on mission with Jesus. The Apostle Paul says to be on mission with Jesus 
we must do at least four things. One, we must develop a strategy. Any business or organization that wants to succeed and make a difference in the world must have a strategy. As the old axiom goes, fail to plan, plan to fail. Uh, you have to pick a target. You have to decide what's a touchdown. You have to agree on what a win looks like. Paul tells Timothy in one of the most famous verses in 2 Timothy, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Uh, we share the gospel with everyone, but Paul tells us we also have to be strategic. Paul tells us to focus on people who have the aptitude to teach and lead others. In this uh, transition of truth from hand to hand, Paul envisions four stages. The faith first is entrusted to Paul by Christ. Then Paul passes the gospel on to Timothy. Timothy, in turn, is to entrust it to reliable people. And finally, they are to pass it on to still others. Um, the ability or competence that Timothy is to look for in people is first in their character and then in their ability to teach others. Uh, this process of handing the gospel on like a baton in an Olympic race we call discipleship. It involves spending a time with a few people with the aptitude to lead and teach others. The perplexing thing is that even though Paul shares this counsel with churches, with Christians, it appears that many churches ignore this advice. Although some churches grow from 100 to 200 to 500 to 1,000 to 10,000 to 50,000, and we're happy about all of that, it appears that many of the people of these churches are not growing deep in their faith. Um, before they had 100 spiritual babies, now they have 10,000 spiritual babies. Um, now, I'm not against large churches. I want our church to reach more people, and I want it to grow. But we have to think about five people we work with. We work with people that are uninterested in the gospel. We work with people that are spiritually curious we work with people who are believers. They're just beginning with Christ. Then we work with disciples, people that have grown strong in Christ. And finally, we work with disciple makers. My observation of churches across the world is that very few get to the process of people who have become disciple makers of others. Thomas Bandy, in his book, Coaching Change, writes sobering stuff. Uh, let me just share the highlights of his book. He says, religious belief is remarkably high in the United States. Even though we see the United States moving uh, more and more to become secular, he still says we are the most religious nation in the world. Religious belief is, to a large extent, superficial. Well, what does he mean by that? Religious in ethical behavior, there is very little difference between the churched and the unchurched. He finds that the churched do the same things that the unchurched do. Very little difference in their lives. 
he finds adult church participants really do not want to grow spiritually. Now, I'm not saying this about you. I'm making, this is Bandy's general observation of the church at large. They are unwilling to do much more than attend Sunday worship irregularly and give a little money to pay somebody else to do the mission. Other than table grace, few Christians are engaged in serious Bible study, family prayer, intentional reading, intentional conversation about faith. As few as 2%, and usually no more than 8% of adults, this, is, this is, matches pretty well what I shared with you last week, Gallup in his survey says usually no more than 10% of Christians are transformed. 8% of adults in Christian churches are involved in disciplined spiritual growth. So the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Now, Paul tells us we need to read our Bibles, but not just that. We have to be able to read our Bibles in such a way that we know how to interpret what it means. For those who handle the Word of God, Paul uses the Greek word orthotomeo, which means to cut straight. It's the same word used in the Greek Septuagint, that's the Old Testament translated into Greek from Proverbs 3.6 where we read, He will make your paths straight. Uh, think of uh, cutting a freeway through the country in a, you know, in, in a straight way. For the most part, in the United States, we have built freeways that are straight. Except for I-5 through the Twilliger turns, where we regularly have accidents. We've done a pretty good job of straight freeways. Uh, to handle God's Word, we have to understand it and then explain it to others in a way that's like cutting straight. Uh, every week, I work hard to make sure that I understand the portion of Scripture, in this case, 2 Timothy, that I'm going to talk about. And then the most difficult thing I do is to figure out how can I organize it in such a way that it will be easy for you to understand. My strategy in this church is to figure out how we can reach people who do not know Christ through our children's ministry, our youth ministry, and our adult ministries to make disciples and how to teach the Bible in a way that it's easy to understand. It takes work to be on mission with Jesus. What else does it take? Two, Paul says, plan on difficulties. He tells Timothy, this is my gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul is suffering as a result of preaching the gospel about Christ. He's wearing the chains of a common criminal. Those he's innocent. Uh, if we're on mission with Jesus, we will face opposition. To get the full impact of what Paul means when he says, I am chained like a criminal, uh, you must understand what Paul faces in the first century. The first emperor, Caesar Augustus, is a good Caesar. Then comes Caesar Tiberius, 
Uh, then there is crazy Caesar Caligula from 37 to 41 A.D. He's followed by Claudius Caesar from 41 to 54 A.D. Then Claudius makes a huge mistake. He marries Agrippina, the granddaughter of Caesar Augustus. She has delusions of grandeur, and she poisons everybody. She poisons Claudius' wife. Well, now Claudius has no wife, and he makes the mistake of marrying Agrippina. She convinces Claudius to promise his daughter in marriage to her young son, Nero, who's 15 at the time. Next, she convinces Claudius to adopt her son. When he does so, they change his name to Nero Claudius Caesar. Then a terrible thing happens. Claudius is poisoned by guess who? Agrippina. Then she bribes the Roman Senate to name her son Nero as the next emperor. He's 17 at the time. Well, for five years, he runs the government through two good men, Seneca and Burrus. But then at age 22, he decides, I want to run the empire by myself. So, he murders his wife, the daughter of Claudius. He need, meets another woman. He kicks her to death. The great historian Tacitus tells us that in 64 A.D., uh, Nero sets Rome on fire, nearly burns down the whole city. He has to find somebody to blame, so he blames Christians. So then he goes on a campaign of feeding Christians to the lions and gladiators. Finally, he kills his own mother, Agrippina. As she is dying, she says, The one good thing that is happening today is that the womb that bore Nero is dead. Those are her final words. Then in 68 AD, Nero, 68 AD, Nero commits suicide at the age of 31. Nero was so evil, you wouldn't think of naming one of your sons Nero. The Apostle Paul serves Christ during the time of Nero. We don't know exactly how he dies, but we presume he was either fed to the lions or beheaded by Emperor Nero. The whole empire is in chains. If that's not bad enough, there's the tyranny of Herod in Palestine. Herod's father, Antipar, befriends Mark Antony and Octavian before they win many battles that secure uh, the, the Rome as the most powerful nation in the world. After successful campaigns in Egypt, they come home uh, to Rome and report to Julius Caesar of Antipar's help. So he makes uh, Antipar a Roman citizen and gives him great swaths of land in Cyprus and Palestine. He becomes wealthy overnight. Then he and one of his sons are assassinated. His other son is studying in Rome. Octavian goes to Rome and becomes the new Caesar. He decides to change his name to Caesar Augustus. He rewards his friend in the best way he can. He names his son, Herod, the king of the Jews. He becomes known as Herod the Great. Now, Herod is not Jewish. 
He realizes in order to be the king of the Jews, he has to win favor with them. So he divorces his wife, Doris, and he goes back to the Holy Land and marries the last remaining Hasmonean from the Jewish kingship to kind of legitimize his kingship. She has two children by him. And then he becomes suspicious of Miriam, his Hasmonean wife, and her two sons, and so he kills them. What kind of father does that? Now you can understand how Matthew tells us that Herod killed all the babies two years and under around Bethlehem. He doesn't care at all about innocent children. This corrupt man is hated by the Jews, but he's called the king of the Jews. He's a chain on the people living in Palestine. These are the conditions under which the Apostle Paul ministers. Many people complain about our leaders today in Washington and locally. But as I look at it, I don't think the leaders in Paul's time were any better. How do you endure serving Christ in less than optimal conditions. Anytime you're thinking your situation's bad and things couldn't be worse, remember the conditions under which the Apostle Paul served. Paul says, I am being chained like a criminal, but God's word is not chained. He says Nero doesn't have the final word. Herod does not have the final word. One of the last lines in the Barman Declaration, 1934, penned by Dietrich Bonhoeffer and other uh, church leaders in Germany, says, The Word of God is not chained. The gospel always faces opposition, but it always prevails. The gospel of Jesus Christ prevails over any opposition it faces. Paul likens Timothy's ministry of serving Christ to that of a soldier, athlete, and farmer. They all emphasize that Timothy's work will be hard. He'll have to have endurance. Join me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Uh, Soldiers have to stay alert. They make life and death decisions. Paul talks about being an athlete. Being on mission with Jesus requires self-discipline and training. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. If an athlete must play fair, the farmer must work hard. The hard-working farmer should be first to receive a share of the crops. The farmer, farmers toil at their work. Paul uses the Greek word kapiao, which means to work hard, to toil, or struggle. Hard work is indispensable to good farming. However poor the soil or inclement the weather, the farmer must keep at his work. Unlike the soldier... Or the athlete, where there's the adrenaline of taking a plane off an aircraft carrier or playing a sport in front of a cheering crowd, the farmer works remotely. There's no glamour or applause. The notion that being on mission with Jesus 
is hard is so unpopular that I emphasize it. Some believers think that if you're in God's will, then everything will go smoothly. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus told us that he suffered, and we can expect to suffer too. The danger of thinking that if you're in God's will, that everything will go smoothly, is that when you hit rough waters, you may give up. Paul's point is that if you're going to be on mission with Jesus, you must know how to endure tough times. It takes work to be on mission with Jesus. So what else does it take? Three, depend on Christ's resurrection power. Now, we've seen this point in all four of our messages from 2 Timothy. Paul tells Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. Paul tells us that when we're trying to make a difference in this world, we must remember Jesus Christ, that he was raised from the dead. We don't just talk about His resurrection once a year on Easter. We talk about it all through the year. Remember that Jesus was descended from David. He came first to the Jews. Then the message of His forgiveness and resurrection went out to people all around the world. His resurrection power is our source of power for everything we do. We don't work on our own strength. We work hard, yes, but we depend on His resurrection power. We serve a living Christ. We find this twofold balance throughout 2 Timothy. Paul told Timothy in the first uh, chapter, guard the good deposit, that's our part of the work, with the help of the Holy Spirit. That's God's part. Then in chapter 2, he tells Timothy, you then, my son, be strong That's our part. Don't be afraid. In the grace that is in Christ Jesus, we depend on the power of Jesus Christ. God shows us how much He believes in us by giving us the privilege of ministering in His name, taking the message of Christ's death and resurrection to people in our lives and around the world. It takes work to be on mission with Jesus. But we only do it by the power of the Holy Spirit and Christ's resurrection power. Finally, what else does it take to be on mission with Jesus? Turn away from evil. So Paul says to Timothy, everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Paul says, if you're going to prove your faith to people you share with, your life has to show it. Paul says, avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Now, we know nothing about these two, except that they taught that the resurrection had already taken place. I presume that they were Gnostics who believed that the body is evil and so they couldn't uh, believe that Jesus had raised from the dead physically. 
so they spiritualize Jesus' resurrection like many theologians do today, saying uh, Jesus' resurrection means Christ is kind of be, being raised in your heart. Such teaching makes the resurrection unnecessary. The Christian faith is based on Jesus' tomb being empty and Jesus being seen by over 500 people who saw him living uh, after, his re- after his death. Take away the, de- the resurrection and you have a dead Savior. You have no resurrection power available to you. Paul calls their teaching quarrelsome words. The people are hair-splitting the meaning of words. Uh, were to avoid godless chatter because it leads to becoming more ungodly. Paul has already told uh, Timothy that he must pass the gospel on strategically. He must share his faith verbally and speak well, and he must turn away from evil and live a life that matches what he's talking about. So what's more important, to speak with our lips or speak through our lives? Have you ever flown on a plane? Which is more important, the right wing or the left wing? When I fly, I like having both wings. At some point, we have to verbalize our faith, but unless we turn away from evil, our words won't ring true. It takes work to be on mission with Jesus. Nothing worthwhile comes easy. God's blessing comes through suffering and toil. No soldier, athlete, or farmer expects results without labor. So why should we expect things to be easy? Neither human wisdom nor divine revelation gives us such an expectation. It takes work to be on mission with Jesus. Jesus went through a lowly birth and a painful crucifixion to arrive at his resurrection. Apostle Paul went through chains in prison in order to share Christ with people around the world. The soldier must endure hardship. The athlete exercise discipline. And the farmer must toil. It's silly to expect our life will be easy. It takes work to be on mission with Jesus. And if you want to be on mission with Jesus, the first step is to invite Christ to come into your life to be your Savior. And I invite you to do that as we pray. Father, thank you for the Apostle Paul, his final letter that he ever wrote from prison in Rome before he was presumably beheaded. And Father, we thank you for his advice to Timothy, and it's now to us. You've preserved this in your word so that we know how to be on mission with you, how to make a difference in this world. We want to be on mission with you. If you feel that way, would you tell Christ that right now as you pray? That you want to serve Him this week with your family, people you work with, people you go to school with or or on teams with, people that you're neighbors with, wherever you go. And if you've never invited Christ to be your Savior, you can invite Him right now to come in and forgive your sins and give you His resurrection power.
Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for us and for being raised from the dead and giving us your resurrection power. In Jesus' name.